technically, there are two classifications of trauma. There is what they refer to as big T or like capital T trauma, and then there's little t, lowercase t trauma. So big T trauma is life or death stuff. It's war, it's assault, it's dog attack, it's that kind of stuff. And that's really what we think of when we think of trauma. And that's why it can be really easy for people to be like, oh, I've never been through anything traumatic. But here's the thing. There's little t trauma. And little t trauma is the more sustained stressors that everybody goes through. And turns out they actually do affect us neurologically, mentally, and emotionally really similarly to how a big T trauma affects us. You are listening to the High Growth Founders Podcast, where we give you unfiltered truth and ideas about accelerating the growth of your startup and becoming the founder you were born to be. No fluff, no games, just straight to business. I'm your host, Casey Jones. Through my career as a coach, consultant, advisor, and mentor, I've worked with hundreds of founders on their go-to-market strategy, building an authentic personal brand, and growing as a leader. You are here for one thing, growth. And this show is dedicated to helping founders accelerate growth, period. We will dive into not only the best strategies that are working today, but discuss the biggest mistakes and failures that industry leaders have made in the past so you don't have to. So kick back, relax, and let's get into the show. So today is, this is a different kind of episode. Um, We're not going to be talking about tactical stuff. We're not going to be talking about how to grow your business, but we're going to talk about, I'm going to tell the story of the most profound and transformative growth experience that I've had in my life and how it happened. I'm not going to go into crazy details, but I'll go into some details and I'm going to share most importantly, what I learned. Because this stuff, this changed everything for me. And it's made me completely rethink how I show up um, as an entrepreneur, how I show up as a coach, as a consultant, as a human. Um, It I, I, I genuinely cannot overstate how much this changed me. And it's taught me a lot about what holds us back as people, but also what holds us back as entrepreneurs. Because it helped me learn what was holding me back, that I had no freaking clue was holding me back. Um, and before we kind of get into it, I'm just going to, I'm going to do the the requisite trigger warning, okay? I'm going to talk about the, the the dog attack that almost cost me my life. And like I said, I'm not going to go into gory details about it, but I'm going to talk about trauma. And not just life or death trauma like the dog attack, but 
the trauma that that experience helped me uncover and helped me finally take seriously in my life for the first time. So, okay, <laughs> we're going to, we're going to do it. This is going to be a big one. So the reason why I'm doing this now is because last week, by the time you hear this last week was the two year anniversary of when this dog attack happened. And, um, not surprisingly, I really think about it this time of year. I really think about what was going on and 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 the impact that it had. And um, because it was such a transformative experience for me, I feel um, called to share it with all of you. So um, if you listened to the kind of intro episode to this podcast, you know the highlights. And I don't talk about this a ton, but I've talked about it in certain places and especially in podcast interviews. Um, so you might have heard the this story. Or if we've been connected for a long time, I did share about it on social media a few times while I was going through it. Um, and I'll also talk about why I did that um, and why it was a really big deal and why it really, really wound up helping me. So, okay. So let's let's give you the the basic rundown. So what happened, and I don't always go into the details of this, but I, I will today. What happened is I, I was actually attacked by my dog. So we had my, my partner, Andy, he had a, a good friend who had rescued this dog. Um, his name was Pillsbury, pretty much like the most adorable name, Pillsbury, because he was all white. And he had actually been trained as a fighting dog um, in his youth. And um, it had really, really screwed him up. And so he had um, been turned into the shelter multiple times. I think he had been brought back to the shelter four or five times. And he was at a um, kill shelter and he was on the list. And she couldn't bear to watch that happen or to allow that to happen. And so she adopted him. And when you, when you meet Pillsbury, when you met Pillsbury, he was a super sweet dog. Um, but he came from a really troubled past. And so he really could be triggered in ways that were, it was, it was sometimes hard to um, predict. Um, so she had him for a couple months. Um, they had no issues, but then she had a, uh, an issue with where she was living and she had to move and she asked us to take care of him for two weeks. And two years later, we still had him. And he was, like I said, a very sweet dog in a lot of ways. Um, but he was also, he was troubled. And so he never came after me or Andy, um, but he did go after my dog, Maid Chin, a couple of times. And um, it was scary when he did. Um, you could see this like switch just get flipped and he would become like a completely different animal. And once you got him off of her, once you got him to calm down, he would, the switch would flip right back. And it was like, he wouldn't even recognize what had happened. And so we tried to be very careful about how they interacted and, um, some of these other kind of issues, but for the most part, you know, yeah, he'd, he'd attacked her a few times, but for the most part, things were, were good and pretty easy. We had tried to rehome him just in case, but really couldn't find a good fit. And this is June of 2020. So I'm working from home because we are in peak pandemic mode at this point. And 
Andy normally took Pillsbury with him during the days, but it was really, really hot out. And Andy didn't want to leave him in the car. And so he was, Pillsbury was home, which he normally wasn't. And it was towards the end of my day. I had just made myself a snack. And my dog, Mei Chin, she started barking. And I could just tell that Pillsbury was getting triggered. So I grabbed May. I grabbed her by the collar and I kind of raced her out the back door so that she was safe by the time that switch had fully been flipped. But this time, and for the first time, got her out the back door so she was safe, but the switch had been flipped. And so he attacked me instead. And he was not a small dog. He was about 110 pounds. We're pretty sure he's an American. He was an American bulldog. Um, So he looked like a really, really big pit bull. And he attacked me. And um, luckily, I am not a small person. So I was fighting him off, but I was not getting him to calm down or to stop. Um, And I mean, I fought like hell. I hit him over the head with an empty wine bottle three times, didn't even phase him. I would push him off and he would come right back at me. So he was attacking my arms, my chest. He got the side of my face and my ear, back of my head. And at some point I realized like I was not going to get out of this alone. And so I opened the side door to my house and I just started screaming at the top of my lungs. Just screaming begging, hoping that somebody would hear me. And thank God it was a beautiful day. And thank God it was the pandemic because everybody was home. And I'm standing in the doorway and I see this woman who I don't recognize. She is at the end of the, at the drive and you, she has no idea what to do. And then my next door neighbor, um, who I really didn't know very well. We didn't have a great relationship with our neighbors, to be honest. We're not terribly social people. And um, I see her kind of race to the end of the drive and I see her look at me and then run off. And that's the last thing I remember for a few minutes. I have no memory of the next few minutes. Um, By this point, I think Pillsbury had been attacking me for probably about 10 minutes. And the next thing I remember is I... I'm lying on the side stoop of my house, my across-the-street neighbor um, is in my kitchen holding my hand while I am sobbing, and I keep saying over and over again, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And my next-door neighbor, Scott, Annette's husband, is holding Pillsbury. Pillsbury is kind of like in his lap. Scott is holding him from behind. And Pillsbury, who is all white, is completely pink because he is covered in my blood. And my arms especially are just shredded in a couple places to the bone. And I mean, it was was disgusting, honestly, and terrifying. And they are trying to kind of calm me down. And they keep saying, no, help is coming. Don't worry. You're not going to die. And then we hear sirens and a fire truck and an ambulance comes and they get out and they're at the end of the driveway, but they see Scott with this dog and they're like, 
they won't come to me because they don't want to get attacked. And this is one of these things you, uh, you never know what you're capable of. I mean, I was, I never knew that I was capable of fighting back the way that I did. I always assumed that I would just crumble in a situation like that. And I did not. Um, but I am gray from, you know, I, I had blacked out at one point. I am covered in blood. My shirt is shredded. My leg, my arms, excuse me, are completely shredded. And um, my neighbors are are yelling at the the EMTs that they've got to come to me, and they refuse. And I don't know how I did this, but I remember looking at them, and I remember saying, "It's okay, I got this," and standing up and making it, walking to the end of my driveway, and collapsing in the arms of the paramedics. I know paramedics and EMTs aren't the same. I don't know which is which. And they put me in the ambulance. And this is honestly, this is the part where it really starts to get scary. It's weird that it's scarier at this point, but it's harder because it is much, it's more chaotic and it's now adrenaline is wearing off. And so I'm in a ton of pain. And they drive me to the hospital, to the emergency room. And I keep begging them to help me with the pain. And they're giving me fentanyl and it is not working for the pain. Apparently there are some people that fentanyl just doesn't work for. I happen to be one of them. And we get to the emergency room and it is like pure chaos. They, they wheel me into this room. There's probably, I mean, I don't even know, a dozen people coming in and out of there. They're taking pictures and they have to x-ray every single part of my body that has been attacked in some way because they have to figure out what is really wrong. And I'm in so much pain that I can't stay still. I'm crying. I'm screaming. I'm begging them to knock me out, which they can't do because they needed me to be cognizant enough so that I could answer questions and they hadn't been able to get a hold of anybody. So I think at some point they got a hold of Andy, but we're not married. And we did not have a kind of a power of attorney um, agreement in place. So he can't approve my medical care. Only my parents can. And they had not gotten a hold of my parents. I mean, it's so I have to be awake. I have to be cognizant. But they need me to calm down. Because they can't get me to lie still enough to do these x-rays and to do what they need to do. And so at some point, they decide to give me ketamine, which is a psychedelic. And this is the best thing they could have done for me. Because it prompted essentially an out-of-body experience where I detached from my body. And I remember, I don't remember any of the details, but I remember having an overwhelming feeling that everything was going to be okay, that I was going to be okay. And I think about, I think about that whole experience and truly the emergency room was the scariest part, the most overwhelming, the most chaotic. 
And I really do think if I had had to be present for all of that and in the level of pain that I was in, I think my recovery would have been a lot harder. By the time the ketamine wears off, and by the way, they gave it to me three separate times. So it was about 40 to 45 minutes before I really kind of came back to, they had got my pain under control and I was kind of with it. And I was me, I was making, I was freaking making jokes. I remember that. They brought a plastic surgeon in to stitch up my face, to stitch up my ear. And they had cleaned out my wounds. And they let me know that they were going to stitch them up, but that they were going to open them again the next day during like a more extensive surgery. I remember there was one thing that has always stuck with me. At one point, they'd stitched me up. They're trying to figure out what room I can go in for the night. And some guy in the hospital, I don't know if he was a doctor or a nurse, I don't know who he was, but he's sitting there on the computer looking at the pictures that they had taken of my arms when I first came in. These, these truly like gory open wounds. And he doesn't even realize that I'm right behind him and I can see all of it. And at some point, someone else comes in and gasps and says something to him and he turns around and realizes that I'm sitting there watching what he's doing. This is the thing that's interesting about the hospital is, especially in the emergency room, they're not there to keep you calm. They're not there to take care of you mentally and emotionally. They're there to save your life. And so they don't always think about your experience. So afterwards, they wind up, they didn't have a room available. So I wind up just going into a, a room in the, emergency, in the emergency room, in the emergency area for the night. And it was the next day that they wheeled me, that they fully put me out. This is the first time I'd been out. I did sleep for a few hours that night, but this is the first time they like put me out. And I had, I think, two or three hour surgery where they reopened my wounds. They checked much more extensively to see the damage and they stitched me back up. And I was incredibly lucky because I didn't have any substantial nerve damage, no tendon damage, no ligament damage. Um, I had several broken bones. My thumb and my elbow were broken because Pillsbury bit me so hard that his tooth punctured my bone. And I came out of surgery tired but feeling better. Um, Andy came and visited me. He visited me in the emergency room too. They let him in even though it was COVID and they weren't supposed to. They did, which I really appreciate. Um, and I go to my, my room on the trauma ward. And I was another, another way that I was super fortunate, super lucky, is that the trauma ward in that hospital was the first, first place in any hospital in Portland, I think in the state of Oregon, 
that allowed visitors during COVID. And so I was one of the first um, patients in a hospital to, to get to have a visitor, which is pretty amazing. And Andy stayed with me for a few hours. And then I was falling asleep. So he left so that I could get some sleep. And I fell asleep. And if you've never had to be hospitalized, you might not realize that they're constantly coming in your room. And so at about one in the morning, they come in my room to just check on a few things, check my vitals. Um, One of the things that was difficult about my situation is because my arms were completely shredded um, and completely you know, stitched up and bandaged, they couldn't give me an IV in my arms or my hands. So I had an IV in my neck, which was really uncomfortable. But so they come in to check my IV and they wake me up. And at that point, um, I started to cry. And I didn't sleep for the rest of the night. I couldn't stop because I couldn't stop crying. Couldn't stop crying long enough to fall back asleep despite being so tired. You know, at this point, I hadn't eaten anything. I hadn't, I'd barely slept in days. And it was in the middle of the night that I realized that what I wanted was to not talk to anybody, to crawl into a hole and not talk about what I was going through to not talk to anyone. And I just, I don't know how I knew. But I knew that if I didn't talk to people about this soon, every day that I waited, it was going to be exponentially harder. And I just knew that I needed to talk. So luckily I was already in therapy and I recorded an audio message because I couldn't, my hands and arms were so bandaged, I couldn't type on my phone. But I recorded an audio message and I sent it to my therapist telling him what was going on and that I needed help. And I sent a message to a couple of friends the next day as well. And I also knew that I always had a really hard time reaching out for help. It was just really tough for me to ask for help. It was always really tough for me. And somehow, I don't know, I knew, I decided that if I posted something on social media about what I was going through, that instead of me having to reach out to people to ask for help, people would then reach out to me asking how they could. And it was the smartest decision that I made. I used the dictation thing on my, on my iPhone to create a post and post it on LinkedIn. And very, very quickly, people that I really cared about and, and close friends reached out asking how they could help. And I, it was truly astounding to me the way people came to support me. And I got a flood of messages from people asking what they could do. A group of women who I'd become friends with, but we weren't super close, Um, but they all lived in Portland. They um, came together. And when they found out that I was being released from the hospital a few days later, they 
delivered groceries and food and flowers and all sorts of things. And I have a very restrictive diet and they did an amazing job of finding food that was, that worked for me. Um, and I started, I just, I started talking and it was the absolute best thing that I did because every time I talked about it, I felt a little bit stronger. I felt a little bit tougher. I felt a little bit more resilient. I felt a little bit more supported and more loved. Um, it was peak COVID and my parents are quite old, elderly, so they weren't going to fly out. Um, and so Andy and I, were we were going through this alone. And so to have people support us in any way that they could was huge. Um, the other thing that I think about often during all of this is this happened on June 10th. So it was about a week and a half, maybe two weeks, two weeks after George Floyd. And between the two of those things, I could not handle anything remotely negative. And turns out TV is like really friggin' negative. It's all cop stories. Most cop, most shows are violent, incredibly, incredibly violent. Um, and so it was really hard for me to sort of keep distracted enough. Um, but I couldn't watch TV in the hospital because it was all the news talking about George Floyd protests and law and order reruns, neither of which worked for me. Um, a few days later, I went home and kind of the, the recovery process began. I was in physical therapy for months. It was a very long process. Um, and I started seeing my therapist virtually twice a week. If you're listening to this show, I know you care about growth. Growth of the revenue and even better, the profits of your business. Growth of the freedom and autonomy in your life and growth of yourself as a founder. And you are exactly who I created the High Growth Founders newsletter for. When you subscribe every week, you get an email with simple, actionable advice to help you be the high growth founder you were meant to be. No BS, no fluff, just the strategies, tactics, and resources I've learned that help you grow your business and yourself as a founder. So go to newsletter dot highgrowthfounders.com and subscribe today. And here's here's what I really want you all to understand. Um, I've been giving you the context of everything that I went through, but but the real lesson about all of this is as I started to kind of dive into therapy and we started to kind of help me deal with everything I was going through. What, what I realized very quickly is that it was not the dog attack that was the hardest part of recovery. It was that this trauma brought up a lot of other traumas. And so let me explain something that I learned about trauma and how trauma works. So, and this is interesting. So technically, there are two classifications of trauma. There 
is what they refer to as big T or like capital T trauma. And then there's little t, lowercase t trauma. So big T trauma is what I had just gone through. It's life or death stuff. It's war. It's assault. It's dog attack. It's that kind of stuff. And that's really what we think of when we think of trauma. And that's why it can be really easy for people to be like, oh, I, I've never been through anything traumatic. But here's the thing. There's little t trauma. And little t trauma is, it's the more sustained stressors that everybody goes through. And turns out they actually do affect us neurologically, mentally, and emotionally really similarly to how a big T trauma affects us. But the problem is they're much easier for us to suppress, to just tamp down and to not really deal with. And so as I started going through my big T trauma, the stuff that was resurfacing was all my little T trauma. Was, you know, things from my childhood of feeling very lonely and alone throughout my childhood. Um, it was um, my chronic health issues. I have autoimmune diseases. I have Lyme disease. I have a degenerative neurological disease that my whole family has. Um, it was my very dysfunctional and toxic marriage to, yes, I know we overuse the word, but yes, my narcissistic ex-husband. It was um, total betrayal by former business partners. It was that stuff that was coming up. It was like once I opened the, the floodgates to this big T trauma, all the other stuff started coming up. And it started helping me realize that most of the things that were holding me back in my business and in my life were things that I just hadn't really dealt with. I was one of those people that it's, I, people thought of me as very resilient. Hell, I thought of myself as resilient and tough. And really, it was just that I wasn't dealing with things. I didn't allow myself to truly feel things. I had had this practice of numbing myself, having a stiff upper lip and just trudging along and not really processing or dealing with these really difficult experiences I'd gone through. And so I really wasn't my complete self. I was avoiding dealing with the pain and the grief of things that I had been through, thinking that that was like the tough, resilient approach. But what it really was, was escapism. You know, we know the sort of trauma responses, right? The flighter, um, uh, what, what fight, flight, or freeze. Turns out flight is mine. And, and I used being busy as my go-to <laughs> flight response. And I did that in my business. I still do that in my business, but I am working really hard at it because now I know that that's what I do. But what was really fascinating about this whole experience is that it got me so in touch with myself, what really mattered. 
There is nothing like thinking you are going to die. And I really was convinced I was going to die during that whole experience to give you a completely new outlook on life about what really matters, about who you want to be, the kind of life you want to lead. And let's be clear, it doesn't, you don't make that transformation overnight. It's this constant unfolding. But the biggest thing was that it wasn't just an unfolding from this one experience. It was an unfolding from a lifetime of painful experiences that I hadn't really dealt with, that I hadn't fully processed. And the behavioral patterns that I had learned from those were showing up in ways that were sabotaging to my own success, to my own happiness, to my own growth. You know, I spoke already about really struggling to ask for help. Guess what? That's a trauma response. At some point in your life, you were taught that you wouldn't get the support you needed, so you learned not to ask for it. You know, there are, there are a myriad of these, right? Thinking you need to do everything yourself. Um, Measuring your own value in your productivity, being busy all the time. All of these are trauma responses. And what I learned from this whole experience is, is, that, is that most of us have them. Not everybody. There are definitely people that have been super blessed that they don't have this. Yeah, they've been through tough experiences, but not like not these sustained experiences that change our brain chemistry and change how we show up in the world but if you have had tough experiences in your life toxic work environments um either severe or chronic health issues um neglect in your childhood bullying in your childhood i mean you name it you are most likely holding on to behavioral mechanisms, coping mechanisms that are designed to keep you safe, but they keep you safe by shielding you from the world, by making it more difficult for you to show up as your complete and whole and authentic self. And so what I really encourage you to do is to look back at your life. Look back at the lessons that you've learned and, and try to recognize, have you given yourself the space, the time, the grace, the permission to heal from these painful experiences? Because my guess is no. My guess is there is a grief and a sadness and a pain that is just, its embers are burning within you. And they are holding you back in ways that are really, really hard to understand until you start to peel back those layers. I, you know, one of the things my therapist told me when, uh, when I was kind of uncovering all of this, I remember at one point telling him 
that I was sad all the time, but that I loved the sadness, that it felt like a warm blanket, that it felt cozy and comfortable, and that I was worried it would never go away. And I was worried that I would carry this comfort blanket with me forever. And he let me know that no, falling in love with my sadness was the best possible thing I could do for myself because it was allowing me to fully feel it. And here's the thing, like, yeah, this memory, this experience, it still, it still brings up emotions. It still makes me cry, but I see it as something really beautiful. And I'm, I genuinely feel blessed for it. And I, it, I don't get triggered and I don't feel like it holds me back in any way because I let myself fully feel it. Now, we're two years later and I am still <laughs> peeling back the layers of the, the trauma and the grief that I have kind of unpacked and recognized from that experience and working hard to fall in love with the grief and the sadness and the pain from those so that I can fully process them so that my heart and my mind and my soul can feel ready to let go. But I know it's going to take a while. If it's something you've been holding on to for 30 years, you're not going to let it go in six months. But oftentimes we are taught in this world and in this life that we are better off moving on, focusing on the future, being optimistic. And I do believe that we are better off being optimistic. But you can be optimistic about your present and your future while still allowing yourself to grieve your past. And it's only when you fall in love with that grief, it's only when you allow yourself to fully feel it, will it start to play a smaller role in your life? Will you start to be able to let it go? So. I know I've shared a lot and I know this is heavy, but if there is one thing I want you to take away, it's that allowing yourself to fall in love with the grief and the pain and the sadness is your only path to being truly free from it. So if you haven't done that work yet, it's time to start. But don't go through it alone. Find someone who can help you. Find a therapist. Maybe a group therapy. To help you peel back those layers. So that you can let go. Because I can pretty much guarantee for all of the founders listening. That if you haven't done that work. That pain, that grief, that sadness is showing up in ways you don't really understand and in ways that are holding you back from growth in your business. So being a high growth founder means being a founder who is in touch with their pain, 
their grief, their sadness. Feel it all. Because that's the only way you'll be able to let it go. And if there's ever anything I can do to support one of you going through these experiences, I am not a therapist, but I'm happy to share my experiences. I'm happy to share what has worked for me. By the way, the uh, newsletter that is going to go live tomorrow is going to be about some of the practices that made the biggest difference for me. So I really encourage you to take a look. Um, if there's ever anything I can do to help you get through this, get through something hard and realize that you are way tougher and way stronger than you realize, this is what this experience taught me. And I know it'll teach you something similar too. Um, please let me know. Don't go through it alone. Talk about your experience. It will become easier every single time you do it. You will get stronger every time you do it. You will understand yourself and what this experience means every single time you do it. So don't go through it alone. And let me know how I can help. And uh, as always, in love and growth. I appreciate you all for listening to this story. I know it wasn't an easy one. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on the High Growth Founders Podcast. If you love what you heard, subscribe to the show of whatever podcast platform you're tuning in from. Much like this show, I love getting into the good, the bad, and everything in between. So please feel free to express yourself in the reviews of the show. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we are all here to learn from one another. So please, if this episode made you think of a founder who is leveling up in their business, take a screenshot and share it with them. And if you're looking for some help identifying where you have the most opportunity to grow your startup or yourself, take my growth audit at a betterjones.com slash growth audit. You'll answer some questions about your business and yourself as a leader that will shed some light on where you can improve. Plus, you'll have the chance to book some time with me to talk through your results. Okay, that's what I've got. In love and growth, I am out of here. See you next time.